I love the Mavatma. That is so awesome. Well, church, it's great to be with you this morning. For those of you who missed the announcement, um, I'm preaching. My name is Bo. I serve as a pastor up at the Village Church in Denton. And so if you are a guest this morning, I just want to encourage you to come back. Do not judge your experience of this church, particularly the preaching, uh, based on me this morning. But uh, I am glad to be with you. And uh, I was telling Kyle earlier, you know, I, I love your pastor so very much and his whole his family, obviously, but then also the whole team. I've gotten to spend time here and there with the team. But uh, before you were born as a church, uh, I have uh, prayed for you. Uh, as I remember, five, six, man, I'd love to play with you in that way, pray with you, play with you. Um, uh, five, six years ago, sitting down with Kyle as he was uh, just praying about what God would be leading him to do uh, in pastoring, and, uh, and here we are. And so I've tried many times, he's tried many times, invited me to come down, and so it's finally worked out. And so I'm so glad to be with you this morning. So thank you for your hospitality, and uh, I'm eager just to read God's Word with you. And so if you have a Bible, uh, 1 Corinthians 15 is, uh, is where we'll be, and um, give you a moment to turn there, um, 1 Corinthians 15, 19 to 28. I know you are in the middle of a sermon series here on heaven, and so I'm going to do my best to try to step into that and uh, really just maybe encourage you and anchor you even more in some of the things that you've already been uh, thinking about together. But uh, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 19 to 28. Let me read this with you. Do you guys do anything or do you just read it normally? Okay, sorry. I didn't ask you that beforehand. Okay, 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 okay. Here I am. Okay. 1 Corinthians 15, it says this. Uh, this is Paul writing to the church in Corinth. He says, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it's plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who, puts, who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. This is the word of the Lord, um, that our God may be all in all. That's one of my favorite uh, little phrases in all of Scripture, and in fact, if you're looking for a definition of heaven, that'd be a pretty good one, the place where God is all in all. It's this concise way to sort of paint a picture of how our God, in staggering love, for those of us who are Christians, he will one day reconcile all things to himself in heaven and on earth through Jesus Christ. And whether people uh, know it or ever acknowledge it or not, God being all in all is the hope underneath every human hope. Every groaning for redemption, every plea for mercy, every desire for beauty, 
every aspiration for significance, every thirst for healing, every longing for justice that we've ever experienced is deep down a hope for God to be all in all in our lives and in the world. And this is the hope, this is the sustaining and living and final hope that we as Christians have been born into, which is what you've been meditating together through this sermon series. And yet, even as we've meditated, you've meditated on some of those things, on the way to God being all in all, our hope is so often, or at least feels so often threatened, doesn't it? Maybe perhaps especially during moments or seasons of adversity. We even sang earlier, if suffering comes, love that song. It's really, it's when suffering comes. What are we going to say? What are we going to do? Because when hardship or when suffering or when uncertainty, when, when failure and disappointment, when especially death comes, we're tempted to think all of us hard thoughts of God, to believe that God doesn't really rule and reign that he's not really Lord, that that he's not in charge, that that he's not active or he's not involved. Even as CJ was encouraging and reminding us of, we look to the cross to remind ourselves that's not true, but because it feels this way, that that he's not involved in the headlines of our world or the headlines of our lives, that he's never going to be all in all. Adversity, and especially death, tempts us all to question our hope in God, in God's character, God's love, God's power. In fact, a couple of years ago now, I remember I heard a story of a, a friend of mine that just really, it was pretty devastating for me to hear. One of my good friends was publicly uh, beaten down. He was beaten up and humiliated in front of his children by a neighbor. Uh, this neighbor had, had angrily apparently said some, something angry to one of my friend's children, and the kid came home crying, and so my friend's wife Uh, was triggered, and she walked outside and started cussing at this neighbor, and then the neighbor began cussing and cursing her back, and so my friend just sort of caught in this moment. He he walked outside to try to calm everyone down and defend his wife and his family, and the man just beat him to a pulp. And as he was telling the story to me, what struck me so deep besides just the, the trauma of the entire situation was the image that my friend recounted of his children watching their father, who before that moment in their minds had reigned supreme and strong, suffering a humiliating defeat publicly. Them watching their strong father rendered powerless in the face of a foe that was much, much stronger than he was. In churches, Paul instructs these Christians here in Corinth that we've just read from in 1 Corinthians 15, particularly those there in that church that were denying that there's a resurrection from the dead. He's warning them that living like this as God's children, he's warning them that this can be a temptation for us to live as if this is what's happened to our Father in heaven, as if he has gotten rendered powerless by a more powerful foe the foe of death. Paul basically says, listen, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised, which means that death will never be defeated, which means that God will never be all in all, which means then that despite what we children of God may think about 
and sing about our Father in heaven, he has actually suffered a humiliating defeat at the hands of death. Because if the dead are not raised, then that means death and not God is all in all. That's essentially his argument here. And this, Paul explains to these Christians in Corinth, that's the opposite of the good news of Christianity. That's the opposite of all the things that you guys have been celebrating and remembering and thinking about during this sermon series. The good news of Christianity is that despite what it seems now, one day through Christ and because of what Christ has done in his life and death and resurrection and ascension and exaltation, that one day our God will be all in all. And even death, which seems so strong right now, even death will be destroyed. So this morning, here's what I want to focus on, just kind of walking back through this passage, if you've got your Bible open there. Three really sections, three things here. One, the promise of God about this that we see in verses 19 to 22. Number two, the coming of God in verses 23 to 27 that will bring this about. And number three, the kingdom of God. Verse 28, so if you like to take notes, I'm not really one of those kind of people necessarily, but if you do, I know some people are helped by that. This is the best you'll ever get from me uh, in my personality. The promise of God, the coming of God, and the kingdom of God. And so the promise of God here about these things in verses 19 to 22, let's, let's remember and rejoice in these things. In verse 19, Paul says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we're of all people here in Richardson, Texas this morning, most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And uh, if you're not a farmer in this room, some of you may be, we've got some farmers in our congregation, most of us probably not, I'm guessing. Uh, what, What does that mean, that Jesus is the first fruit? We don't really use that language a whole lot. Uh, first fruit is really just the first serving of the harvest. It's a, it's a preview or it's a taste of the inevitable harvest to come. And so Paul here uses the imagery of first fruit, maybe if you've read other places in Paul's writing, in the same way that he kind of uses the imagery of like a down payment. Most of us know that, right? Earnest money. It's a tough time to be thinking about earnest money in this market, but, but, but this is Paul talks in this language, down payment, earnest money of the Holy Spirit in particular. And so the resurrection of Christ, Paul's saying, like the giving of his spirit, it's a down payment. The resurrection of Jesus that we're celebrating here in this season of Easter, it's a pledge and a promise of God that God is going to bring forth a more full and final payment, a whole harvest of resurrection, So church, God raising Jesus from the dead is a guarantee that God will one day raise all who have fallen asleep in Christ, all who have died in Christ from the dead. And that's actually why, uh, maybe some of you have seen this, different places, uh, churches had cemeteries next to their sanctuary. I was actually in Boston this past week with uh, uh, my sons, and uh, and we were up there at Christ Church right there off the public uh, uh, Boston Common, the garden there, and there's the cemetery there that's got, uh, you know... uh, some well-known and not-so-well-known people from the Revolutionary period. Sam Adams is buried there, uh, Paul Revere. I just called him Sam like I know him. Uh, Samuel Adams, Paul Revere. Uh, Mother Goose, come to find out Mother Goose is buried there, or the, the, where the legend of Mother Goose comes from. Um, but uh, but there, you know, there's a cemetery right next to the sanctuary, and so I got to take my son aside and say, hey, you know why they did this? Uh, they did this because in the same way that they've all died together, they believe that when Christ returns, they're going to be raised from the dead together. And as a congregation, they wanted to be raised together as a church. 
Uh, and so I told myself, maybe we could take that green space out by our church and turn that into a church building. And, uh, never mind. Anyway, I don't know if the neighbors would like that. But, but church, Christ's resurrection is not just what makes our resurrection from the dead possible. It's what makes our resurrection from the dead inevitable. The risen Christ as the first fruits, points us toward this inevitability of a whole harvest of resurrection, a whole harvest of saints who have fallen asleep in Christ who are going to have their bodies raised from the dead. And in verses 21 and 22, Paul highlights this inevitability by highlighting a parallel between the Lord Jesus and the first human, the first man, Adam. Look at verse 21. It says, For as by a man came death... By a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. And a couple things to notice here. The first thing I would just point out is that Paul highlights the true humanity of the Lord Jesus. That Jesus was a real man, a real person. Paul says, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. Now, I don't know if those in Corinth, the church there, were questioning that were questioning the resurrection of the dead were doing so because they were sort of arguing that Christ was and could be raised from the dead and others couldn't be raised from the dead because Jesus shared in the divine identity of the God of Israel but not in the real humanity. But Paul is making, of humans, Paul, Paul is making, no, that's not the case. Christ was a human being. He was a human like Adam and us us with a physical body, a body that died and a body that was raised from the dead, which undercuts any argument that God raised Christ but that he won't raise us because Christ wasn't like us. No, he was like us in every respect save without sin. That's the glory of the resurrection is that when we're united to Christ, we're going to be raised like him. But we're going to be raised like him because he became like us. In our humanity without sin. He was man. He was a human like us in every way without sin. So that's the first thing to notice here that's kind of implicit. But then the second thing to notice is the actual point I think Paul's making in describing the parallel between Adam and the Lord Jesus. And it's helpful to notice that Paul is not focused here as he was in his letter to the Romans on making the point that Adam's sin brought death. Certainly Paul understands and believes that. He wrote it. But what he's wanting these here in Corinth to see in the parallel between Adam and Jesus is the effect their lives have on those who come after them, those who are in them, in his language here, united to. So so through Adam's sin, yes, death came to Adam, but death came to all human beings that came after him. That's what he's wanting us to see. And, as, and all who are in Adam share Adam's banishment or exile, as you guys have been talking about, from Eden, right? That's, as you talked about last week, hell is exile from God. That's part of the point that he's making here, that, that those in Adam share Adam's banishment from Eden, his alienation from God, and his fate of death. Death came through Adam to us, and in the same way Paul's wanting us to see Resurrection from the dead has come through Christ to us, which means that all those that are in Christ Jesus now, who have been united and bound to him inseparably and eternally by the Spirit, shall be made alive. This is what he's arguing for. We shall be reconciled to God, raised from the dead, and live in God's blessed presence forever. 
So just as bodily death inevitably comes to all of us from Adam, so bodily resurrection inevitably comes to all who are now in Christ. Church, that is glorious news. That's God's glorious promise to us here, that in Christ's resurrection, He has begun a reversal of the consequences of sin that began with Adam. That our hope as Christians is not just that in Christ our sins are forgiven. Certainly that is true and that is glorious and that is foundational. We've sung about that already and we'll sing about it again. And yet our hope is that God not only forgives our sins, but that He also releases us. He liberates us from all of sin's effects, including its final effect, which is death itself. Amen? And so, saint, do you trust this? This is the invitation in this whole sermon series, but certainly again this morning. Do you trust that your resurrection and the resurrection of all those who have fallen asleep in Christ, it is as sure as the coming of the dawn? That just as Christ's body was raised from the dead, yours will be too when God brings in the full harvest. Oh, I pray you know that. And I pray that even your vision and your hope that we have in Christ, a hope that in the end will be displayed in your body being raised from the dead. I pray it's been growing throughout this entire sermon series. And I pray as well that your vision of your salvation is growing bigger and more tangible than the first heaven that you guys have been talking about is unimaginably as wonderful and refreshing and as temporary or as that temporary paradise will be. But church, God promises you, He promises me that one day there will be resurrection. There will be a bodily life after life after death for those who belong to Christ. And on that day, our sins having been forgiven, every effect of sin will be finally and fully and forever reversed in our lives and in the rest of God's creation. And on that day, our souls will be rejoined to our bodies, and we will live in our resurrected bodies with our God in a new creation of complete flourishing and shalom forever. This is the day we have our hope set on, the promised day. This is the promise of God here, and yet that leads to a question, but when's it coming? When's the harvest coming? Like, where is it? Why is it taking so long? How long, O Lord, must we wait for your kingdom? How long must we wait for you to finish this reversal of sin's effects? How many more pandemics? How many more wars? How many more earthquakes? How many more sexual assaults? How many more divorced marriages? How many more abused children? How many more cancer diagnoses? How many more martyred Christians must we endure? How many more sleepless nights? How many more outbursts of anger? How many more bouts with shame or battles with addiction must we persevere through before you bring the harvest? How long, O Lord, until your salvation comes? I mean, Revelation says that this is even what the saints in the heaven are crying out right now, right, under the altar. How long, O Lord? And though Paul, like the rest of Scripture, doesn't give us a timetable for when the harvest of resurrection will come, in verses 23 to 27 here, he assures us as God's people that it will come, that God himself will come. So let's look at that now in verses 23 to 27, the coming of God. That was the promise of God of resurrection, now the coming of God. Verse 22, it says, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. 
but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. And the phrase here, maybe you guys have talked about this as a church, uh, at his coming, it's, it's the Greek word parousia, which is a word in the New Testament that is used to describe, not just in the New Testament, but in the New Testament times and literature all over the place, it's used to describe the arrival of a sovereign ruler or of an emperor in a formal visit to a place, or as sometimes as well as to describe the epiphany of a god. So like the emperor returning to Rome victorious as a god would be a way that that would be used in literature of the day. And so these Christians in Corinth would have, or Corinth, anyway, We've got a Corinth up by our house. I always get, you know, it's Corinth, Denton, if you go up 35E. Anyway, always get, get a little confused there. They, they would have read this word, this phrase in our Bibles, that is coming, and immediately had images of the pomp and the circumstance that surrounded imperial visits to Corinth in which the emperor or other sovereigns had come and been received and celebrated and honored even as gods. And so what Paul does here is he takes this imagery filled with merriment and honor and worship and he applies it to when our God through his Christ will return. The parousia, the coming of the Lord Jesus. And though Paul doesn't give us any details about when it happens, he assures, he's assuring these Christians that when our Christ returns in a parousia that is more glorious than any victory parade they had ever seen, he's assuring them that all those who have died in Christ, who belong to him, will be raised like him when he comes. He's pointing them to his coming. And in fact, maybe you've gone through these portions of Scripture in your sermon series already, but in his letter to the church in Thessalonica, a church who wasn't denying the resurrection of the dead like those in Corinth, but who needed more clarity around what's going to happen to Christians who would die so they wouldn't be so anxious or disquieted. Paul says this, he says, the Lord Jesus will descend from heaven. He's he's describing the coming of the Lord, the parousia of the Lord. He will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise. Or if you're still here, if you look down in verses 51 and 52 of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul echoes this same sort of thing. He declares this great mystery to the Christians in Corinth saying that at Christ's coming, he says, we shall not all sleep. In other words, our bodies will not remain dead in the ground, but we shall all be changed when he comes. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed But church, the point that Paul's making, even if he doesn't give us the details of when it's going to happen, is that our God is coming. Though we don't know when or even how exactly, Christ will return from heaven to earth in the same way that he ascended. And when he does, the dead who belong to him will have their bodies raised from the ground and be changed. And then Paul says... We will have finally reached the end. We will have reached the goal. We will have reached the telos of our unshakable hope as Christians when Christ returns. Because as one put it, Christ's return and the harvest of resurrection that when he returns he will gather in, it will whistle the close of world history. Look at verse 24. Paul says, Then 
When Christ returns and the dead are raised, then comes the end, he says in verse 24. When he, speaking of Christ, it gets pretty dense here, so stay with me, stay with him. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying, or that's a word that in your translation might be rendered dethroning or abolishing or overthrowing every rule and every authority and every power. Now, I want to just slow down just for a moment here and make sure that we acknowledge, if not sort of feel it in our guts, the glory of what this verse, verse 24, proclaims. Underline verse 24, because church, this verse is the hope that we have as Christians our entire lives set on. Again, every groaning for redemption, every plea for mercy, every desire for beauty, every aspiration for significance, every thirst for healing, every longing for justice that we've ever experienced, whether we are aware of it or not, is a yearning for the hope of what verse 24 describes. The end When the Lord Jesus will return, and after he has destroyed or dethroned and abolished and overthrown every rule and every authority and every power, he will finally deliver the kingdom. He will hand over rule and reign to God the Father. Deep down, this is what we, along with the rest of creation, we are groaning for, for the Lord Jesus to return and to do this. And some of you are looking at me like, yeah, but what does that mean anyway? Christ is going to deliver the kingdom to God the Father? This is a verse that many Christians have never read, much less understood to be the very orientation of their hopes and desires and longings. And Paul explains what he's talking about. It gets dense, but he explains it here in verses 25 to 27. So stick with what he's saying, and let's look at this. Verse 25, he says, For he, the Lord Jesus, must reign, as he's doing now, until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Church, did you know that the Lord Jesus is and has been since he was raised from the dead and ascended to heaven and exalted as Lord? He is reigning as king right now. That having been exalted after his ascension when he came into the heavens and and sitting down, being exalted at the right hand of God and given the name and the title above every name by God the Father, the name of Lord... He now sits on the throne of God at the right hand of the Father, reigning. That's what he's doing right now. And church, did you know that the Lord Jesus is reigning and ruling actively, not passively? That in other words, Christ's major work for you and for me and for the world wasn't done after he died. It wasn't done after he was raised. And Christ is now not just sitting there in glory with nothing left to do but wait and pray. Like he's, as one of our pastors likes to say, he's high-fived the Holy Spirit, your turn. And now he's just sitting there chilling. And if we're not praying to him, he just sits there. He's kind of watching the Netflix, just catching up. Like that's, that's what he's doing. A lot of us, I think, have a vision of this. This is what Christ said. No, Paul's saying. Church, the Lord Jesus is all the time actively ruling and reigning and working and willing, as Paul says here, to put all his enemies under his feet. This is what Christ has been doing since the day that he ascended and was enthroned by his Father, and certainly before that. That's what he was doing, right? And it's what he will continue to do until he returns. And my, oh my, is this good news. And if maybe there's one place I just want to maybe have God put courage in you today, it's right here that he would encourage you that Christ Jesus is not 
idly sitting by as tragic headlines in our world and in your life rage on. He's not twiddling his thumbs or sort of distantly watching the drama of world history and our individual lives in it play out with a box of popcorn in his lap. No, he is actively working and willing and ruling and reigning in love to dethrone and abolish and overthrow every rule and every authority and every power, which is why every time we join him in doing justice, every time we show mercy, every time we care for the sick and seek healing and give to the hungry and protect the vulnerable and act as peacemakers in light of the gospel, we're joining Christ in what he's doing on earth and asking him, bring to earth what's being done in heaven. Your rule and your reign on earth is it is in him. We're aligning our lives with the reign of Christ in putting all his enemies under his feet. That's what he's doing. And to describe Christ's work like this of reigning, to put all of his enemies under his feet, you know, Paul quotes directly from the Hebrew Scripture that is directly quoted in, in the, from the Old Testament more than any other Scripture in the New Testament. And you know what Scripture that is? The Old Testament Scripture directly quoted more often than any other in, in, in the New Testament. I'll give you a hint. It's a psalm. And it's not the psalms that we're most familiar with probably, that are most popular today, as wonderful and comforting as those psalms are, it's Psalm 110. Maybe this afternoon if you're wanting to go read a psalm or tonight before bed, read a psalm together as a family or just personally, Psalm 110, uh, I've never seen it on a coffee mug or a cross stitch, but it is the most quoted part of the Old Testament in the New Testament. In fact, I was reading uh, Luke 19 to 21 yesterday and Jesus himself as his final week in Jerusalem, he's quoting from Psalm 110 to explain his ministry. And it's echoed again and again and again by the early church. And it's echoed to proclaim Jesus' reign as Christ. And verse 1 of Psalm 110, which Paul paraphrases here, is a verse that describes the heart of the work the God of Israel promised he would give to his king or his Christ, the one seated at his right hand, the work that he would give his Christ to do, the work to bring God's kingdom from heaven to earth. And of course, in order for God's Christ to do that work, in order to take creation into new creation, his Christ, his king, must first overthrow and defeat and dethrone all the enemies of God, enemies like Satan and sin and death that have vandalized and oppressed and held in slavery God's creation, especially God's people, which is why Paul refers here to these enemies. We don't talk like this as Christians very often, but Paul refers to these enemies in verse 24 as rulers and authorities and powers. Because in Adam, these enemies came to rule as sort of overlords of humanity, holding God's image bearers hostage from God and from God's good purposes, His great commission for their lives, which is the opposite of God, what God wants for us. He wants us to do what He created human beings and gave them a great commission in Genesis 1 and 2 to do in the beginning, right? And in fact, that's why in verse 27, if you flip down, stay with me, this is the most kind of dense part. Paul also quotes not just Psalm 110, he quotes from Psalm 8 and he says in verse 27, for God has put all things in subjection under His, speaking of Christ Jesus' feet, and then he clarifies by saying, remember I even got tripped up reading this earlier, where he says, but when it says all things are put in subjection to Christ, it's plain that God, the Father, he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. And then the part 
of Psalm 8 there, God putting all things in subjection under His feet. That came from Psalm 8. And Paul understands to be saying that, that to be saying the same thing as Psalm 110. And yet, unlike 100, Psalm 110, Psalm 8 is talking about all of humanity, not just the role of God's Christ. Psalm 110 is speaking about the role and the work of God's Christ. Psalm 8 is speaking about the role of humans in general. And so, in other words, as one put it, this, this role of being under God and over the world is not just the task of the Christ. It's what God had in mind from the very start when He created humans in His own image. That's why when it talks about us reigning with Christ, that's what it means. And this is precisely the point that Paul's trying to make here, that the resurrection and the present rule of the Lord Jesus, it is all about what? Overthrowing and defeating all of God's enemies. Why? In order to bring about the fulfillment of what God intended for His humans and His creation all along. Christ has come to rescue, not just us, but He's come to rescue and bring into fulfillment God's plan that from the beginning we would have this great commission even before sin came into the world. And He's come to lead us back to that. And then in verse 26, Paul clarifies, and the last enemy to be destroyed, the last enemy to be dethroned, to be abolished, to be overthrown in order for God's purposes to be filled in humanity and His creation. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And church, this is the central point that Paul is leading us to here, that death is the enemy. Death is the most bitter fruit that the root of sin overseen by Satan has brought about. As Hebrews chapter 2, the author there, the pastor there puts it, that death is the power that has under Satan subjected to humanity to lifelong slavery. Death is the final enemy. Death is the last power and rule and authority to be defeated by and subjected to the Lord Jesus. And obviously, that has not happened yet. Over a million deaths at the hand of an airborne virus remind us of this in our country. Right, the anniversary of a spouse or a child remind us of this. In fact, uh, on Tuesday, it's the second anniversary of a three-year-old that died in our congregation, that drowned on a piece of property. And we're reminded, the last enemy to be defeated that is not yet defeated in this way that's being described is death. Right, the fear that haunts us in the emergency room or when the diagnosis comes reminds us of this. Right, the aging and the deterioration of our bodies that most of us in this room are not yet familiar with, although we're starting to get there. I think I broke my big toe somehow. I don't know what I was doing. I think I was just walking. Um, so though we Christians are no longer slaves to the fear of death, the power of death has not yet been abolished in, the, in one sense. It still haunts and taunts and mocks us because though Christ has been raised and now reigns, Death has not yet been subjected to him in the full way that it will. But that day, church, Paul wants us to know, and I want me to know, and I want you to know, that day is coming. And with the parousia of Christ, when Christ comes, it will come. 
And when our victorious Christ and King returns and raises all the dead bodies of those who belong to Him, He will parade death through the streets for all in Christ to see and sing together, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Praise be to God who has given us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We know where death's sting is still today. We feel it. But there's coming a day when God Himself returns in Christ where that will not be the case. And then the end will come. And our hope will finally be fulfilled because the kingdom of God on that day will finally come on earth as it is in heaven, which is what verse 28 summarizes. Look at verse 28. We'll end here. The kingdom of God. Promise of God. The coming of God. Now the kingdom of God. Verse 28 says, When all things are subjected to Him, the Lord Jesus then the Son Himself will also be subjected to Him, God the Father, the one who put all things in subjection under Him. And this will happen why? What will be the ultimate result? That God may be all in all. That God may finally on this day be all in all. Beloved, this is the end. And again, this is our hope beneath all all of our hopes, that God would be all in all. Every groaning for redemption, every plea for mercy, every desire for beauty, every aspiration we carry for significance, every thirst we have for healing, every longing for justice, it will be fulfilled when the dead are raised and God is all in all. And Paul's point throughout his whole argument here to these Christians who are actually undermining their hope by saying there is no resurrection of the dead. By the way, let's not say that. All these things are true in part because there is a resurrection of the dead. And Paul's argument is is, his assurance the whole way through is that this end is coming. As surely as first fruits point to the coming of a harvest, the resurrection of Christ points to the coming of this moment, the moment of our God being all in all, which is why it's so important for those in Corinth then, for us in Richardson or Denton, Texas now, to be confident about what happens after we die, to be confident about what heaven is. This is why your pastor is leading you through this sermon series, because if God doesn't raise the dead, then Christ hasn't been raised. And if Christ hasn't been raised, raised, then Christ doesn't reign. And if Christ doesn't reign, then He is not, as we speak, subduing death that God might be all in all. But church, Christ has been raised from the dead. Amen? And He does reign. And right now, as I finish speaking and you finish listening to what I've said, He is working to subject death to Himself that God's kingdom might come that our God might be all in all and satisfy every hunger and thirst for salvation we have ever experienced or imagined experiencing. So, beloved, do not grow weary in this wilderness, especially in whatever unique season of it you are in, seasons where perhaps it's being revealed that you're not as certain as this hope as maybe you thought. You're not sure The pain is bringing you to the point of wondering, is this real? Is this ever going to happen? And even where it is revealed that the hope that we're living toward is really maybe not God being all in all. Like if I'm talking about this and like you're hearing me say, God be all in all, you're like, that doesn't sound exciting. That's something to be curious about. 
Maybe just having a bad day. Maybe you didn't sleep well. Maybe that melatonin's lasting a little bit longer. I don't know. But seriously, if there's something here where you're like, none of this resonates with me as a Christian, as my deep hope. Like, I'm just, I'm thinking about tomorrow. I'm talking about the emails and my, you know. And that's something to be curious about in your community group. And perhaps even let the Lord by His Spirit lead you into some turning back to Him in regards to where your hope is. But whatever the case, where we're tempted to forsake the confession of this hope, that Jesus is the risen Lord, let us resist. Let us hold on to and help each other hold on to the confession of our hope in the face of all of the death and all of the suffering and all of the loss and everything else that would fill up the headlines of our world or our lives right now. Because God's Holy One, He has been risen, raised from the dead. He's overcome the grave. And that means for us that the path of life has been opened wide because He has made a way. And one day He will return and our God will be all in all. And this bully that would want to convince us that He's more powerful, this bully of death than our Father, He will be shown for what He is. Really an insecure bully that Christ Jesus will subdue and put an end to and lead us in parade of celebration as we enthrone our God in our praises forever and ever when heaven and earth come together. So let me pray to that end.